1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to A.I.
0: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
1: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
0: Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at Canva.com, designed for work. Canva!
1: Despite the fact things have been bought and sold for centuries or, or even longer, the way it happened in this country, which led to the great American pastime of shopping, really developed during the 19th century and in one district of new york you can still see the shells of the pavilions and palaces of gilded age retail a strip but more like a collection of blocks once known as ladies mile and to take us on a very special journey into this world not only to see what it was like but to help our modern sensibilities understand what it all meant is my guest today Emma Guest-Gonzalez, who knows this world very well. So put on your hat, grab your walking stick, call the carriage, and let's go shopping. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History podcast, which every two weeks takes a look well beyond the glitter and the gold of Gilded Age America, the Belle Époque of France, and of late Victorian and Edwardian London. I'm glad you've joined me today for a look beyond not just the velvet ropes, but beyond the swinging and revolving doors into the world of Gilded Age shopping. Shopping in these grand palaces gave women, and not just those with unlimited purses, but even those with more modest incomes, a new sense of freedom and choice, and most importantly, power that they never had before. It's a fascinating story of just how we got there, and most importantly, how shopping in Gilded Age New York influenced what we all do even today. And you might be surprised. And so joining me today is a dear friend and colleague, Emma Gasconsales. Emma is a Ph.D. art historian and one of the best licensed professional New York City tour guides there is. In fact, she's president of the Guides Association of New York and, like me, a guide for Bowery Boys walks. And a number of you, who knows, may have been already with us out on the streets. One of Emma's most popular tours is her exploration of Ladies Mile, that famed Gilded Age shopping district, and so she was hands down the perfect guest for my show today to share not only its stunning architecture and style, but what it all meant. And so as I pour our signature cups of tea, Emma and I have shared many, many cups of tea, have not we not, Emma? Emma, I welcome you to The Gilded Gentleman.
2: Thank you, Carl. It's really an honor to be here, and it's a real pleasure to hang out with you again. I love our little tea parties. I love talking to you, so thank you. And I love talking
1: to you, and now it's nice to to take it all public. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to actually pour your tea here. I have a bracing pot of English breakfast, which is perfect. It's just I've seen it's just about eleven, so perfect for Elevenses, don't you? you That sounds wonderful. And how do you take your tea? I mean, just a
2: spot of milk. That's all I need. (laughs) You were born in
1: London, after all. (laughs) So let's begin this story, and let's really go back to the very beginning. And I want to dive into this topic of shopping in the 19th century, which, like so many other things, changed dramatically over the course of the century. So. Emma, let's go back to the early years, let's just say 1820. And if you needed a new dress and I wanted to buy a new suit, well, how would we have gone about that? What would that have been like?
2: Well, we typically would have gone to a dry goods store, where which would have had fabrics on view in bolts or on merchandise displayed on pillars attached to the walls of, of a store on the ground floor of these shops usually. And the upper floors are usually offices, also warehouses, sometimes even the residence of these merchants. And so we would select our material often have to haggle with a merchant for the best price, and then the fabric would be brought to a tailor or to a seamstress or even sewn in our own homes, because in the early 19th century, there wasn't really ready-to-wear clothing. And ready-to-wear clothing really changes over the course of the century. It comes sooner for men. Their clothing is much easier to um, manufacture in a quick way in a manufacturing setting. And then women's clothing slowly changed over the course of the century. But at this time in the first half of the 19th century, it's mostly being handmade and being made um, to measure. So all custom. Yeah, custom, custom. And you had to pick your fabrics. And then you picked all of the trappings and all of the different things that you'd added to it, whether it was lace or ribbons or everything like that.
1: Gosh, it sounds like a really complicated process. And it probably was. took a long time. Yeah, too. <laughs> it, took a, it took
2: a long time. And it took a lot of stops. You had to go to different places. Some places, some dry goods stores would have everything there. But you would, again, you'd have to be interacting with and working with somebody who would show merchandise to you. And then you could be selecting what you wanted and how... You wanted it to be made, you would speak to your tailor or to your seamstress who would make them. So, for you.
1: nothing like, oh, gee, I need a new frock for the ball tonight and it's four in the afternoon. I'm going to go no. buy one. <laughs> no, no, it's, oh, gee,
2: I need a frock for the ball that's in six months. I'm going to, I might go to Paris and buy one if I'm very well to do, or I'm going to start looking and getting it ready months and months ahead of time. And
1: this was shortly to change because fairly early on in the 19th century, and I think we probably can credit one gentleman, an Irish immigrant, for changing mm-hmm. all of this, Alexander Turney Stewart really turned the world of retail such as it was on its head and changed the world forevermore,
2: right? So A.T. Stewart, he opened his store that was known as the Marble Palace. It's covered in Tuckahoe marble. It still stands today on September 26, in 1846, and it's on the corner of Broadway and Chambers. And the building still stands, and actually it was recently cleaned. It's absolutely beautiful. The main thing that Stewart did was he changed the way goods were displayed. So he divided goods into different areas and different sections, basically departments. In fact, this is considered one of the first department stores, a dry goods store. And dry goods, when we we're talking about dry goods, we mean fabrics, we mean um, basically items that could be shipped and would stay dry. You, know, you could wrap it up and put it in a barrel really or a box.
1: But really yes, the components of an, an outfit or yeah, a dress the components or of it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. So yes. it was
2: all displayed. And so you could go into the store and see everything laid out nicely and in attractive ways that would attract your attention and that would attract the shopper.
1: So interesting, that little rule that, well, if a customer can see it, then maybe they'll buy it. So it seems like there were some other things that A.T. Stewart did, which we think nothing of today, but that were very revolutionary at the time. What else did he do?
2: Well, he had the idea that if you Put the prices on items, people will know, and you won't have to haggle with a salesperson. And if you put a price on something, you can also put it on sale. And other dry goods um, stores were doing this too. And what A.T. Stewart did really for the first time was really pushing the idea of customer service. Okay, you make a space, you make a place attractive, and so people will come in. And that really, really comes to a head with his store, which is called the Iron Palace, because it was made with cast iron, which opened in 1863 further uptown, up near Astor Place. And it was on the on um, between 10th, 9th and 10th Streets. And so this really, really pulled people to this great, great space. And there are wonderful descriptions of how beautiful it was with beautiful atriums and beautiful natural light flooding in so people could really see the goods and they can enjoy themselves while they are shopping. Shopping becomes a pleasurable experience.
1: Gosh, I wanted to <laughs> shop then. Could you share a little description of
2: what it was like in one of those stores? The important thing to keep in mind is also the use of cast iron because cast iron means you can have wide open spaces on the inside of the stores. So A.T. Stewart's Iron Palace was several levels. And so there are beautiful staircases taking you up and down into the different parts of the store. It had a huge atrium in the center, so light flooded into the space. And people could see the goods. They could also see each other. And um, there's some wonderful, wonderful descriptions. Actually, in Gaudy's lady's book, uh, a woman by the name of Alice Haven, she went into the Iron Palace in 1863 and describes how beautiful it was. And she talks about the beautiful light coming in, this pale blue tint pervading the light. And she talks of the gaily dressed, restless, ever-changing throng, like a waving tulip bed or the glittering of a kaleidoscope with an ascending hum that marks a high of human activity and industry. And so it's this beautiful description. And um, she wrote this actually to appeal to people who hadn't been to the shop yet. So they would read Gotti's and think, oh, I should go there. I want to visit this store when I get to New York City, because it was pretty new, and it was very large. And so people were feeling intimidated. But her description gives us this wonderful aura. And you can just imagine all of the ladies walking around and this beautiful, beautiful space and all of the goods on display.
1: I don't think I'd be intimidated to walk into a field of waving tulips. So I, know. I don't know. That wouldn't have scared me so much. <laughs> now, one of the things that I think we all say as New York City tour guides in our in our talks and tours is that often you can look at the history of New York over 400 years as really a population moving its way up the very skinny island of Manhattan. Never mind the boroughs, but nonetheless, Manhattan. And it's sounding like that's what happened to retail too, because you first start uh, talked about A.T. Stewart way downtown with the Marble Palace, and now we're talking about the Iron Palace up around Astor Place. But then we continued
2: on up the island. Yes. Where did retail go from there? Oh, yes. Well, the whole city grew from the southern tip moving up the island of Manhattan. And so keep in mind, and um, some of your listeners may know this already, but others may not, when we're talking about New York City at this period, we are just talking about Manhattan. We don't get the boroughs until 1898. So right now, New York City is Manhattan. So Stewart, he stopped at 10th Street, around the height of 10th Street in 1863, but other stores moved up. In fact, Macy's, he opened his first big dry goods store on 14th Street in 1858, but the really the biggest movement was in the 1870s through the 1890s and early 1900s, and the area they're concentrating on is Broadway and 6th Avenue between 14th Street and 23rd Street, and this is basically what we call today the Ladies' Mile Historic District.
1: Ah, uh, that is what Ladies' Mile mm-hmm. really is.
2: Mm-hmm, yep. So Ladies' Mile, actually, the term Ladies' Mile was used in the late 19th and early 20th century for... the area on Broadway between 14th and 23rd. 6th Avenue was known as Fashion Row. And what really changed everything was on 6th Avenue was the opening of the elevated transportation, the L. The 6th Avenue L, which opened in 1878, bringing um, people from, passengers from, basically from Washington Square all the way up to 58th Street, going right along 6th Avenue. And so the shops that opened there were built, were designed For the L, and they're designed for those shoppers who would be traveling that public transportation.
1: So much of this area today, when you wander around what is left, is this architecture, these stunning, stunning buildings of European-inspired architecture. Mm -hmm. Would you explain a little bit about that and the style and what they looked like and what they were made of?
2: Yeah. The the palaces, these um, great palaces of commerce, they're just beautiful. um, I I believe they're also called palaces of consumption. Okay. So you think, and actually the textile and fashion conservator, Kristen Pertich, she talked about the way that you can parallel the crystal palace movements. Okay. The crystal palaces and all these beautiful displays also with the display of goods in the shops. Okay. And so you have this kind of idea of everything is on display. And so cast iron is really an important material for this because cast iron architecture um, is relatively inexpensive. You can make beautiful, beautiful facades, and they are load-bearing. So what that means is the weight of the building is held up by the iron facade, and then you have wide open spaces on the interior with interior columns that can be relatively small, but it means you don't have load-bearing walls interrupting the space. So all the goods can be on display. And then when you add marble, and you add carvings, and you add terra maricotta detailing and great entrance ways and beautiful plate glass windows that attracts people into the space. The interesting thing is along 6th Avenue, you have two levels of displays because they made sure there was a set of large windows at the level of the trains, of the elevated trains. So when you're stuck in the train, you can look into the windows and you can see the shops and think, oh, maybe I'll come back to this. Or you know you're going to that destination. And some of them, one of the biggest, Seagull Cooper, it had one of the stops was right there at the store, at the corner of the store. So you get out and you literally just walk right into the store. And so you could see it on both levels. So if you're riding the train, going uptown, you can see the stores, you can see the displays from your level, while people walking on the ground would also see it on their level. And you can still see that today. A
1: little bit of marketing, I yes, guess. Yes, total right? <laughs> marketing. Total, total marketing. So it seems like the experience for a shopper would have been this one of incredible drama, not only passing by these beautiful buildings, but then once you entered inside these big, wide-open, dramatic spaces, almost like a theater. When you think of 19th century theaters with mezzanines and balconies that were designed—the theaters, of course, at the time, were designed to show off the audience, what well, sounds to me— like many of these stores, the interiors were designed to show off the shoppers. So it was a oh, little yeah. bit of see and be seen, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it?
2: totally, totally. And then you have to think of some of the big stores also opened lounges for ladies, little salons where they could sit and they could rest a moment. Some of them had everything from, you know, a post office to a nursery. You could go there and you could drop off your child and do your shopping. I mean, this sort of the the today, the You know, the classic image of a harried husband sitting surrounded by parcels while the wife is running around shopping. That's what's happening already in the 19th century. And the thing is, with public transportation, women who were not of means, who were not of the carriage trade, and the carriage trade literally means you arrive with your carriage to the shop, they could take public transportation and they could shop by themselves.
1: It sounds to me as if with this new environment of shopping, some Women could just go in and never come out. You know, you would have everything, it, certainly all the comforts of home. So, you had mentioned this collection of blocks, which constitutes this area. There were two separate areas. In other words, it seems like one was Ladies' Mile and then was one called Fashion Row. Right. How were they different and did they appeal to the same or entirely different classes of
2: clientele? They're totally different in the sense of the clientele because on 6th Avenue, you have public transportation. So you have the L. You have the elevated tracks, and you can travel by yourself, and you don't need to have a carriage. On Broadway and 5th Avenue, that's the carriage trade. So you arrive in your carriage. You have somebody bring you there okay, uh, or walking traffic, you know, pedestrian traffic. And so the style of the buildings is also very different. You don't have that second level, because you don't have that second level of people looking in from from the elevated train tracks. So it's a different kind of store. And the really, really big ones that had so much stuff, um, especially in the 1870s, 80s and 90s, are concentrating on Sixth Avenue, because that's where the public transportation is. So you've got more traffic. We've got more people coming in. The earlier ones, um, some of them are on Broadway. So like um, Lord and Taylor opens on Broadway, not on Sixth Avenue, but the Siegel Cooper is on Sixth Avenue.
1: I find that completely fascinating. So thank you, Emma, so You're much awesome. for sharing that. Um, so let's take a little break. I think we need to, um, I'm seeing we're a little bit low on the tea, so I'd I love need another to cup. <laughs> I'd love another pour cup. you another cup. And uh, and we'll be right back and talk a little more about this. summer. Welcome back. This is Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today's guest is PhD art historian and professional tour guide, Emma Guest-Consales. And we are discussing the glamorous Gilded Age world of Ladies Mile. Now, Emma, we've had such a fascinating conversation so far about the sort of the physical world of all of this. I am fascinated by what the actual experience would have been For some of these Gilded Age women going into these great palaces of of retail. And I think that that's something that really bears a little bit of of discussion. Uh, I had read at one point that for a woman to now be able to go out in public and to go into some of these stores, this represented an entirely new experience. They were no longer chained to being at home or with any of the other responsibilities. And this was. A bit of a feminist concept. What, can you talk about that? What are your yeah. thoughts about that? Oh,
2: yes, definitely. Well, shopping, I mean, has always been in the, in the female world. And women are in charge of shopping and purchasing items for their household, for their children, you know, for their husbands, and for themselves. And with these great emporia, it's, they're really being catered to. They're really being catered to. And so they can enjoy themselves going by themselves, no chaperone. Um, There's um, one of the comments in the ladies Gaudi's book is how there's a little desk to set aside for women to sit and write a note if they want to, and they're not going to be disturbed. They're not going to be harassed by anybody. And the fact that the customer is right and that their customer is being catered to, they're not worrying about haggling with somebody. They're not feeling intimidated or pressured by sales. And it's all made to entice them to bring them into the space. And this is a safe space. So they can go to a store like the Siegel Cooper, which is enormous, is absolutely enormous, with all these different departments and wander around literally all day long. And they're going to be safe, and they're going to be by themselves, or they may be with friends, or they may have, you know, a maid servant or someone to help them to carry the items with them. But they are by themselves. They're not asking their husband to bring them to a place. They can take public transportation to get there. If they have their carriage, their carriage will bring them there. But they're really catered to, and they're being enticed to view the space, so it's made to be as comfortable as possible. And they're the ones who really have the power. They have the buying power, and the um, the fact that the space is are made for them, gives them a lot of power on their own to to dictate what they like and what they want to purchase and what they want to see
1: and what a revolution not not only in retail, but what a revolution for a woman's experience. Yeah. That certainly was. When oh, you were yeah. describing that, one of the thoughts I had is, you know, in our digital world today, mm-hmm. we always talk about websites that try to create a level of, stickiness. In other words, Mm -hmm. things that keep you on the site or keep you shopping or keep you where they want you to be. Well, it just strikes me as these stores did exactly the same thing in the Gilded Age. It was sort of a, you know, let's give you all the amenities you could possibly want and make you comfortable. And and you'll stay longer, and it certainly sounds like people did.
2: Oh, yeah, they totally did, and, and for all levels. So, for example, um, the Simpson Crawford, they would advertise only in the evening newspaper, with the special sales, because they knew certain clients, you know, the more well-to-do would also purchase the evening paper, so they would see that, they would know something was coming up. Actually, Simpson Crawford was famous for not putting prices on their items because if you had to ask the price, it was likely you couldn't afford the price. And they had two entrances. They had an entrance on the side of the building, for ladies arriving in their carriages, and then the entrance on the front for people who are arriving with the public transportation. And so creating these wonderful, as you mentioned before, these also these theatrical spaces, bring people in, okay, they bring people in, and then all sorts of enticements from window displays, to sales, to mail order catalogs, uh, all the kinds of things that we think of with shopping today, they're starting in this period and getting more and more popular, and more and more of a way to attract attract customers. It's all about the customer, and it's all about making the sale.
1: Well, I guess it still is, right? Yes. (laughs) One of the things when you and I were talking about this um, and thinking about this show is you had mentioned that this was really the advent of window shopping. And I never thought about that before, but I guess partly because of the structure of the buildings and the increased consumers, it, it really was.
2: Oh, yes. Well, window shopping actually is a much earlier phenomenon that starts in early 18th century Europe with, with glazing windows, you know, using glass for windows. And covered arcades opened in Paris. And the most famous was the Galerie des Bois, which opened at the Palais Royal in 1786. This helped to inspire shopping arcades throughout Europe so people could stroll and look at goods on display. But these are on a smaller scale. These are little groupings of separate shops all together, little clusters of small establishments. The grand stores that were We're talking about in New York City, the same as in other great capitals of Europe in London and Paris. They're designed for window shopping, whether you're walking along or, as I mentioned, you're window shopping from the L, so you can see things going by. And so these great displays, you could promenade, you could see the space, and merchants could put goods on view that they knew would entice and bring people in. Um, For example, Christmas displays, and you display toys in the window. You're walking around with your kids. What happens? This happens today. My kids are 18 and 21. This happens today. Something's in the window. They're going to bring you and say, mommy, daddy, buy that for me. And so you have that in the 19th century. And um, you can see photographs of people window shopping. It's really, really great.
1: It's sort of the uh, 1890s version of the homepage. Is that kind yeah, of thing? <laughs> yeah, kind of thing.
2: Yeah, you have the great display. And there were different ways of attracting people. So, like you said, the stickiness. So, uh, i go back to the Siegel Cooper. They called it the big store, and they had a huge statue in the center atrium when you walked in. There was a fountain and there was a statue, and the saying was, meet me at the fountain. And there's this beautiful statue. which was actually a copy of the Statue of Columbia by Daniel Trester French, which was done for the Chicago Expo. And there was a smaller version in the store. And that was the landmark. That was where people would meet. They would meet up at the fountain, they meet up at the statue and then go shopping together.
1: If you could wind the clock back and you yourself go shopping today in one of these great stores, which one would you pick?
2: Um, I definitely go into the Seal Cooper. Why? I, oh, because it's so extravagant and so over the top. Just on opening day, on opening day in 1896, over 150,000 people tried to get in the shop in one day. Okay, and I love telling this story. The L was packed, the streets were blocked, the police had to be called in. There's poor Captain Chapman, the New York Times writes about him trying desperately to get control of the crowds. And even Mr. Cooper himself couldn't get in. And this is wonderful counter he's rapping on the window saying I am Cooper I am Cooper let me in and they had to bring him in the side door because he couldn't get into his own shop and this is wonderful stories so I definitely want to go into there I'd love to go to the Simpson Crawford and um, some of them are beautiful I mean even today you can go into these spaces and get this amazing experience
1: now with your tour, your mm-hmm. live on the streets tour, which I'm sure we have enticed all of our listeners so. to take. Now, too, as you wander around Sixth uh, Avenue or particularly Ladies Mile, the Broadway stretch, what are some of your favorite buildings? Are there places that you still stand in front of today and look at them and just are a bit in awe?
2: Well, I just love, I just love going into. It was the old, it was the Adams Dry Goods store, and now there's a Michaels. You know the the craft shop. Yes. Okay, the Michaels. Um, in there and they've done a beautiful atrium so you can walk inside and see this gorgeous atrium so their offices in the building too so if you go in on the street level you get to see the atrium and you get to see into the space and then you look down into the shop itself and it gives you some sense of what that space was like another gorgeous store absolutely beautiful is on 23rd street it's now it's the home depot okay they're much more prosaic but they're still <laughs> big box stores it's a home depot but that was the stern brothers store and it's Oh, beautiful, beautiful cast iron, and it's painted white. It looks like a big wedding cake. And you go into the Home Depot, and you can see some of the cast iron columns. They still have the capitals on them. You can see the big atrium in the center. Again, there are offices, and I think there are apartments above it now, but you can see the space You can get a sense of the space. And a really fun thing to do when you're walking around the Ladies Mile Historic District, whether you're on 6th Avenue or whether you're on Broadway or even 5th Avenue, bring a magnet. And stick your magnet to the building. Well, because of the cast iron facades. And so it's great fun. I have these magnets and I just stop and stick them to the buildings. Now, sometimes the paint layers are kind of thick, so it's hard for them to stick. But you can look for cast iron. Look for little telltale signs of rust, or you can see where the paint has chipped away. And you can stick your magnet to a building. So I like to give guests magnets, and then we merrily stick them to all the buildings as we're making our (laughs) way up the street. It's a lot
1: of fun. The concept of the cast iron was certainly structurally allowed these great interior spaces, but Am I correct that it was also a way to create a very elaborate and beautiful facade fairly inexpensively? Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yes. Of course. You could, because cast iron, it's not uh, an expensive material per se. And what you could do was you could go to the cast iron foundry. People would typically go to the offices and they'd look at the great catalogs. And you could pick out how you wanted your facade to be. You wanted a Corinthian arcade. You wanted pedimented windows. You wanted um, little filigree, like what I. Like to call the twiddly bits, you know. You can add <laughs> as much stuff if you want to a building. In fact, when Lord and Taylor opened on Broadway, the commentary was how beautifully designed it was and how gorgeous the cast iron was. And the Times comments that this is in eighteen. 18- 69 1870 they comment on how richly decorated it is and that's all thanks to cast iron because you can mold and you can and you can form it literally cast it into the any shape you wanted and so the shops there were downtown and the foundries were actually uh, a lot of them were along the east river and so you would pick the kind of facade that you wanted and then you would have it actually produced at the foundries, and then the pieces brought to the site and put together. I mean, the very famous Soho cast iron district, those were for factories and also for stores. And they continue that right up in the whole entire Ladies Mile Historic District, whether it's on Broadway or 6th Avenue, even a little bit on 5th Avenue as well.
1: So you had mentioned a few minutes ago, the Lord and Taylor building, which Mm -hmm. you can still see remnants of on uh, 20th Street and Broadway today. And when I have led tour groups, myself, they all stop. And before I've said a word, they just stop in front of this extraordinary structure. Because it's this deeply flamboyant French, 18th century, over-the-top style. Can you talk a little bit about the actual architecture of some of these, these stores? Because it was so it's seemingly influenced by French and Italian style. Oh, yeah. And
2: not just French, Italian. I mean, I've heard people describe the Lord and Taylor building as um, like the architecture of Prague. I mean, it's this whole mishmash of European influences that are being brought to the United States. And with that kind of flexibility and the, um, the way you can really play with cast iron, you can make anything you want. So sometimes for an art historian, if you want to say, well, this is French or this is Italian or this is whatever. It's like, yeah, it's all that and more. And they're giving this great American twist and so pushing it all over the top. So the Lord and Taylor building that you um, referred to is actually, it was hailed for its extravagant use of cast iron. And the New York Times in 1870, it quoted, said, "...the building under construction is honest." proclaims itself to be iron at a glance, its profusion of ornament and minute Rococo workmanship. In a word, its wealth of filigree acknowledges with all honesty what it is made of and could not have been done in stone for millions. And this is key because you can get all this elaborate stuff and it doesn't cost as much as if you'd had to carve it all by stone.
1: You know, what I think is so interesting about that, uh, as you were reading we look at these buildings, and they really were this incredible combination of French and Italian and other European styles, but there was something just a little bit different about mm-hmm. it. And it was not a straight translation of European architecture, there was that Americanism in it that really did create something new. And I think that's an important point.
2: You're right, Carl. It really has this new kind of American flavor to it. And in fact, the King's Handbook from 1892 quotes, all America goes to New York for its shopping when it can. And this really, this idea of New York as a shopping mecca, as a place to go, I think you can um, hear it best in this quote. and I'll, um, I'll read this right now. What cannot be found here is not to be found in any shopping district anywhere. The brightness of Broadway, the vivacity of Lower Fifth Avenue, the sparkle of 23rd Street are made up of the splendid temptations of the shop windows and the groups of charming people who linger about them spellbound. Ill fares the rural or provincial purse whose owner ventures before these attractive windows, extending for miles on miles, ever diversified and varied. A perfect kaleidoscope of silks and velvets, laces and jewels, rich books and music, painting and statuary, rifles and rackets, confections and amber-like bottles, cloisonne and cut glass, everything imaginable for use or luxury, masked in perfect affluence and displayed in the most attractive way possible. What are the Parisian boulevards or even Regent Street to this magnificent panorama of mercantile display reaching from the Washington Arch to Bryant Park?
1: Gosh, it sounds stunning. Do you think in today's, because we really have so few examples of that kind of thing today, in, in today's online world, do you think we've lost something?
2: I think so. I think especially, you know, with the the pandemic and everybody doing everything digitally and everything online, I like the shopping experience. And I don't like to shop, actually. (laughs) And I live in Jersey, where we have all the big shopping malls. And it is that experience of, you know, seeing and be seen, um, going into the shops, being pulled into, you know, you know, you're being marketed to, but that's also kind of nice at times. And, you know, seeing the care that some stores take with their displays and things like that. So, Yeah, I kind of miss it in the digital world, so I like having the actual shops. And some of the ones I mentioned, you know, these great big stores, they're still stores today. I mean, it's a Bed, Bath & Beyond. It's not the Seagull Cooper, but it's still fun to visit.
1: Absolutely, and the thing that really strikes me the most is they were really a sense of community. It was an experience to bring people together. And we've talked specifically about, about women, but really all people could come together in the in the world of retail. And I find that really, really interesting. Emma, I can't thank you enough for joining me for your wonderful tour and, and guiding me through the world of Ladies Mile. Emma, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to get together, and it certainly was today.
2: Oh, it was so wonderful. Thank you, Carl. It was an honor to be on your podcast. I love having tea with you. Anytime I'll be here.
1: I look forward to having you again. We have lots of art subjects to talk about, we don't we? We <laughs> do.
2: I can't wait. I can't wait. Listeners, please check
1: out BoweryBoysWalks.com so you can catch Emma live on the street as well as her virtual tours. And thank you all so much for joining me on this episode of The Gilded Gentleman. I invite you to visit Patreon.com backslash The Gentleman to become a patron of the show. I truly appreciate all of your support. I couldn't do the show without you. And as a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including interviews, early material from upcoming shows, and special audio segments created just for my patron audience. If you like what you hear, please write a review, please subscribe, and please contact me at carl at com with any thoughts, ideas of shows you'd like to hear, Or anything you'd like to share. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?
0: When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick.